Welcome to the Metal Hammer podcast, episode 110. I'm Mo and I'm joined here today by reviews editor, Jonathan Seltzer. How are you doing, sir? I'm still alive. I'm good. That is a, a fantastic start. Um, <laughs> I'm also delighted to say uh, that I think for the first time on the, on the Metal Hammer podcast, certainly in its current run, uh, we're joined by former Metal Hammer chief, uh, editor-in-chief, I should say, and current head of Twin V, Mr. Alexander Mylas. How you doing, Alex? I could be more delighted to be here, Merlin. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We, we continue to roll on in this strange old world, but um, it's a pleasure to be able to connect with you both. Uh, yeah. in this magic new way indeed uh, it, it's it's a strange time uh you know but in the meantime you just have to keep on living and certainly metal has been an incredible solace i think for for many people um you know definitely a rabbit hole to go down to and uh, i guess the fact that we're sitting around here means that we're actually incredibly privileged uh, to be able to connect as a community despite uh i guess all these strange and sorrowful happenings yeah, absolutely. And um, we got a lot of great stuff to talk about uh, today as well. We're going to have a lot of fun. Big Iron Maiden debate uh, happening later on, a band that we all have a vested interest in, and I'm fascinated to see how that one goes. Um, before all that, though, don't forget the latest issue of Metal Hammer is out right now. It's a world-exclusive interview with the one and only Dave Mustaine, and it's a wonderfully um, emotional and candid and ultimately very uplifting piece um, obviously, I'm not going to implore people to just kind of go out and buy it willy-nilly, but if you do happen to be doing a shop for essentials and you go past the magazine section and you see a copy of Metal Hammer in there, uh, we appreciate your support. If you fancy picking that up, uh, we promise you won't regret it. And there's also a bonus edition of this very podcast. In fact, a video version of the podcast featuring myself talking to trivia main man Matt Heafy uh, about their new album, What the Dead Men Say, and we also talk about some of the strange influences uh, that you might not have expected uh, that, get, that went towards their classic breakthrough album, Ascendancy. Um, and we also talk about Tiger King as well, because fuck it, isn't everybody? Uh, so you can head over to the Metal Hammer YouTube to watch that now. Um, but yeah, as Alex kind of alluded to there, uh, I think one of the real silver linings about this whole situation is all the great shit that's happening around the metal scene at the moment. Um, I mean, in this week alone, we've seen that Amonomath's Johan Hegg is running online yoga classes with his wife. I mean, that's a sentence I never thought I'd say in a million years. <laughs> I think another another great thing as well is that all the support that people have been giving in, giving to bands at the moment, especially like the bands I was supposed to be touring over the last month. So, you know, like m most bands, I've been looking at their merch sites, trying to help out. Everything's selling out really quickly. So there's been a lot of support on the metal scene for that and yeah definitely yeah, yeah it, it, we are one of those things it does kind of bring out the best of us i think yeah totally i mean when you look at the the live stuff that bands are doing that there's almost too many to keep up with now which is which is a good thing but um for instance cavell attack doing that live stream show uh, on april 10th which i think is friday yeah friday so tomorrow when this podcast comes out um uh, Cavell Attack will be doing a live stream show which is great it starts 8 p.m uk time um they've actually done like kind of Seltzer was talking about these exclusive merch bundles that you can pick up just for the show, which is great. So there's still a real opportunity to go and support bands at the moment. So please go and do that. Uh, Nuclear Blast as well. Sorry, go on. I was lucky enough to see Cavell Attack live on this tour just before it all got cancelled. It was one of yes. their last shows in Berlin. I was going to say, uh, where did you see them? Because, oh yeah, I saw them in Norway. I saw them in Berlin and it was like, they were amazing lives. So, um, I know they kind of feed off an audience, but they've got so much energy of their own. And new singer's great. He's, yes, you know, he's got yes. this kind of like 
a total crust punk feel, you know, style to him. Just leans out of the crowd. He's got this kind of very sort of lean Iggy Pop kind of look, um, like Iggy Pop meets crust punk. And they're a great live, and I'm sure the, um, you know, even without an audience, it's all going to come across. Yeah, absolutely. And the new album's just so good as well. If if you, we've talked about it a lot on the podcast, but if you haven't heard Split yet, please go get it. It's the best thing they've done in a decade, and I don't say that lightly. It's a fantastic. No, it's record. the best album they've done since the debut. A hundred percent agree with that. Um, Nuclear Blast have been doing loads. The excellent Nuclear Blast uh, records have been streaming loads of great stuff with their artists on Twitch. They've done stuff with Sepultura, As I Lay Dying, Cellar Darling, uh, loads of Q and A's and fun stuff going on there. So go check out the Nuclear Blast profile on Twitch. Um, yeah, there's just loads of great stuff going on in the metal scene at the moment, uh, which kind of brings us really uh, to our first big talking point, which is the album of the week this week. Um, we're going to do Nightwish. Uh, unquestionably the biggest thing happening in metal this week maybe maybe even the biggest thing happening in metal this month there's a few big albums on the way but this is about as big as it gets right now for sure um what do you guys both think of nightwish i mean alex you you were the first editor of metal hammer to put them on the cover which was a huge deal well you know uh, i mean it's interesting uh, for you to mention that uh, it's uh, it was a different time i mean it was 2008 um you know i had uh, only recently started as the editor of Metal Hammer. And, and at the time, I think the publication had kind of reached a low ebb, you know, perhaps because it had exhausted many opportunities, um, you know, elsewhere and so on. And, and so I think that the, the resolve on my part, the resolve of, I think everyone who was there was, let's just make a heavy metal magazine. And, and, and of course, in order to do that, you kind of have to make a conscious decision to detach yourself from any other form of music journalism or punditry out there and just completely absorb yourself in the world of what metalheads want, which sounds revolutionary um, to no one except someone who was in the media sphere at the time because mm -hmm. it was actually an obvious decision put Nightwish on the cover at that point. Of course, Annette Olsen had only just joined, but you could see the band doing this stratospheric ascent and it was just having the confidence in the readership and the confidence in the, the community to meet us halfway. And they more than did that. And um, I guess it was an exciting time because it felt like, um, from my perspective, I think from many people's perspective, it felt like the magazine began to reconnect with the community out there uh, that wanted a magazine that didn't compromise and spoke to the kind of values and the kind of tastes that they actually had. And it was the kind of thing that you just couldn't get anywhere else and uh that's not to say there wasn't a sweaty panic the night before the the issue came out but uh it was you uh, must know that feeling very well <laughs> oh I, I i think anyone who's ever edited a magazine does and i guess you know we're we're in a uniquely privileged position because all three of us have done that and uh, uh the, the the truth is um you just never know until you start seeing those sales come back and it was heartening it was encouraging and i think it really set the stage for much that would come later on yeah, absolutely. And, and what's really interesting is that when uh, when you were still at Metal Hammer as editor a few years later, and we did the the first cover with Fleur Janssen, um, I remember the same kind of conversations were happening again. It's like, oh, are they still, you know, are they really big enough at this point? Does it really work? Are we sure that this is going to be something that connects with the readership? And now we've done two more Fleur covers since then, and it just seems like the most natural thing in the world. Why wouldn't they be on the cover of Metal Hammer? Because... I mean, what they've done since she's joined the band is quite phenomenal. It's one thing to, to have two singers um, in your career as a band and still do great things, but to have three and only get bigger and bigger with each change is quite, uh, quite an achievement. 
Yeah, I mean, in my previous incarnation, I was editor of a magazine, and I think we were the first to put Nightwish on the cover in the UK. Really? A terrorizer? Yeah, a terrorizer, yeah. So this was, this was still back in the Tarrier days. And um, yeah, and we could sense that they were getting, at the time, we could sense they were getting huge in Germany and across Europe. And I was dubious, to be fair. Um, and I, so I went to see them play at the Astoria Rested rest Soul. And I thought it was going to be full of... Oh, I was at that gig. I remember that show. Yeah, and I thought it was going to be full of goss, but it wasn't. It was genuinely full of metalheads. And um, so I only, you know, obviously my tastes weren't, didn't quite extend to that, that side of metal, but I knew it was part of the whole metal sphere because, you know, we covered a lot of power metal, um, a lot of, lot, lot of music with bombast. And, yeah, I realized that there was a, um, that there was a, you know, that there were a metal band, there were a metal band. And I was really curious, like, why is it that, like, there's a whole lot of metalheads singing along to Walking in the, was it Walking in the Air? Yeah, yeah, the Snowman. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I knew that they were going to be huge. So I put them on the cover and I wanted to ask that question. How the fuck does um, a band playing um, Walking in the Air get huge amongst metal fans? And that was a question <laughs> I wanted to cover feature to ask answer yeah and and so, you know i think the the history is has shown that it was a very relevant question um what's what's interesting about this album is that amazingly it's only the second record kind of studio album that fleur's been on uh, she's been a part of the band for eight years now so it kind of shows you how the nightwish machine has rolled back into this kind of um this huge franchise that kind of isn't putting albums out every other year uh, like most metal bands do. They've turned into a real event band now. It's an, it's an event when Nightwish put a new record out. Um, the album's called Human Nature. Uh, it's a double album. The first half is kind of more traditional album. The second half is pretty much predominantly uh, instrumental. Um, themes of uh, kind of humanity and our relationship with the earth are all here. Uh, stuff that I talked about with Fleur on a, on a bonus podcast a couple of weeks back. Um, what do we think of this record? What are we saying? Well, you know, uh, it's it's interesting what you, uh, uh, you know, kind of think about when you consider what Nightwish's career has been, right? Um, and it's interesting given, you know, who else we're also speaking about in this podcast, why they had that longevity, why they could survive the lineup changes, why the, um, the singer changes have not signified a, a fundamental change in uh, who they are as a band. And it's because there has been a vision there, right? There has been a consistent view of where they're going, I think for a very long time. And in that, um, Thomas Holopainen is is that person, you know, who's mm-hmm. kind of ensured that sort of genetic material of the band, um, you know, is, is always, I think remains, you know, fairly consistent, you know, through uh, a lot of tumult. And I, I really see this record as just, you know, an extension of the, uh, the, the bravado, the pomposity, uh, and the sheer ambition and refusal to really accede to any external commercial pressure. I mean, Nightwish, they have become, like you say, a machine, uh, a law unto themselves. And, um, you know, just, I mean, and this just seems to continue just th- that complete exuberant, um, you know, denial of, of, of any rule set that any other band seems to live by, you know? Um, I mean, the, the record is huge. If you love Nightwish, I think this is going to be a masterpiece to you. If you know nothing about Nightwish, I'm not sure it's the greatest entry point because mm. it's a lot. It's 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 Andrew Lloyd Webber big. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean the the, the Webber things 
at such a spot on comparison because you know it it sound what nightwish do sounds like it's something that should be soundtracking a musical or it should be soundtracking an uh, an epic movie um you know uh, our reviewer ali cooper gave this album a resounding 9 out of 10 um in the latest issue of metal hammer uh and it this absolutely feels like an amalgamation of um everything nightwish have been building towards for the for the last couple of albums uh I mean, there's a lot to get stuck into here, but generally speaking, it's all kind of big, epic, operatic um, waves and waves of kind of synth and all these different instruments turning up that we're not really used to hearing on on metal albums. Um, I mean, even just from the very first track, the first track's called Music and opens with this big kind of tribalistic rolling drum beat and war horns that sound something like off an Urukai march on Lord of the Rings or something like that. (laughs) Um, and then it gives way to all these shimmering operatic tones, big orchestral vibes. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just off to the races straight away. It's just, it, there's such a huge sounding band. Uh, and the, uh, I mean, the single they released, Noise, I actually thought that was one of the more catchier to the point songs they'd released over the last few years. So I was quite interested in that because I was like, oh, okay, this feels like the kind of Nightwish that, you know, Nemo came from, for instance, that kind of more catchy, straight-ahead single thing. Uh, not that anything they do is exactly straight to the point, but you know what I mean. Um, but that's that's really the only song on here that's like that. <laughs> there's so much other stuff going on. Uh, yeah. There's a track called Shoemaker, which is like super, super orchestral, big, big warbly um, vocals from Floor because she kind of like the closest she's ever sounded to the Taria Tarunan era, I think, is, is on this track. Um, uh, and then, so the, yeah, first three tracks is kind of Nightwishes, Nightwishes, you'd expect them. And then Harvest kicks in, track four, a kind of Hey Nonny Nonny folk song um, where they literally sing lyrics about grain. And I, you, <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> <laughs> they're just this kind of i was listening to it and i was like you know what it's so easy to rip the piss out of bands like this because who the fuck writes a song about grain do you know what i mean like who does that and nightwish do it and they do it in such an earnest heartfelt way that you can't help but be carried away by it um it's just no one else is doing this kind of stuff and it's easy to be snidey about bands that do things like this but i just think this is a band that are headlining Wembley Arena for a laugh these days. They do it every time they come over now. And they're writing songs about fucking grain. And, it, and, like, and in this track, there's, there's instruments I've literally never heard, about, never heard of before. And they've got like tin whistles, pan pipes. They've got something called a bazooki, which is apparently a Greek stringed instrument. I didn't even know what that was. I don't know where the hell that's come from. Um, so yeah, it's just, there's just so much going on on this track that uh, makes me think there is no other major metal band in 2020 that can get away with doing something no, like this. No, what do you think enough. about that, that particular song? I mean, I, I'll be honest. Um, I, in, the, in the past, I've been asked to uh, uh, try and define what heavy metal is. And uh, uh, the, the best one I think I ever came up with was an absence of irony because it's just completely literal in every sense. And when everything is telling you that things have to be dumbed down and overproduced and all that, um, yeah, Nightwish kind of represent the sort of band that, yeah, they can do all of it with a straight face. And I think the word that you used is absolutely correct. An earnestness that I think mm-hmm. people connect with. You know, I mean, we, we swim in cynicism these days. The media tells you that people have no attention span and they're releasing, is it an 80 minute double album? I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of astonishing. 
it is it's just crazy and and I, like in terms of the you know i was going into specifics for a, for a minute there but in terms of the broader strokes of the album what i find really interesting about it is obviously it is it's about human nature it's about our relationship to nature and the planet around us and i feel a really like kind of warm and quite earthy vibe around this album which isn't something you'd normally think of for a band like nightwish necessarily um but there's quite a lot of kind of shimmering synthy stuff going on through the record which i really like uh, there's a track called procession which if you actually pick apart the kind of the uh, the synth stuff that's going on underneath that track it almost sounds like that kind of 80s synth wave thing that a lot of bands are doing at the moment which sounds like a really odd fit for what nightwish are trying to do with this album but it's just i thought it was a really interesting thing that they put in there um in terms of like heavier tracks, there's only a couple of tracks that I thought stood out. Pan and Tribal, they both are much more riffy, more like old school Nightwish, which was all about big riffs and those kind of kind of like operatic bits thrown in. Um, <laughs> Can you do that again? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, the last track, Endlessness, very imperious, marching, emotional kind of number. Um, but yeah, in broader strokes, I think like Alex said at the top, really, if, if you know, if you already know that you love Nightwish, you're going to love this album. If you're not into Nightwish, this probably isn't the album that's going to dissuade you. But um, weirdly, it's actually the second disc that I find most interesting because as someone who likes a lot of Nightwish, I love uh, some of the albums they've done. I'm a big, big fan of Dark Passion Play, for instance, and I love a few of the tracks they've done with Floor. Um, I didn't think I'd be sitting here saying that I really dig the kind of whatever it is 40 odd minute instrumental bonus no it's not bonus this but second half of a nightwish record that's not something i ever thought i'd be into but i really like what they do with it because it just it just sounds like a movie soundtrack i can't think of any other way to say it It sounds like it could soundtrack a lord of the rings film and that's i listen to those soundtracks i've got those vinyl sets behind me right now like I, I really, really enjoy the journey that this album takes you through. There's kind of moments that are really high tempo and dramatic, moments that are more kind of uh, slow and lush. There's a track called The Green, which again, I've, I've written words like warm, emotional, somber, kind of, uh, you know, real heart, um, heartstring tugging stuff. Uh, I find it really, really interesting that um, Tuomas has decided to do this. And I think he completely pulled it off in a way that, I find absolutely fascinating. What did you guys think of the instrumental side of the album? Well, I think my experience with the album is probably very different from yours. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, I was listening. I was listening to it, and I and com compared to what I was expecting, my first thought was this is actually remarkably restrained as an album. Hmm. Like it's, yeah. like, I mean, it's really well crafted the last one had like a 28 minute song on it or something so from that point yeah on... <laughs> i mean i mean it, it's really well crafted but the but, but the lack of parping and pomp and bombast is kind of in its favor really so it, it um it doesn't have it doesn't go oh doesn't you know for all the stuff that's going on it doesn't go overboard too often apart from maybe you know i'm maybe just because i'm not really into like kind of jigging kind of stuff like in harvest i thought the you know there's some Twee Disney bits and pan, um, but the bits I like about Nightwish. No, see, I'm actually more pro the um, Yannette era. 
uh, I think she's the most interesting. She's my favorite singer out of the three. Mm. And, the, and, and that was the sound of the vinyl um, needle scratching off of the uh, plate. I'm not saying like she's technically the most gifted singer because obviously, you know, Taria is like untouchable as far as our singer. It's just, um, it's really Mama and I, I can't listen. I can't, I, you know, I can't redo really her vocals. Um, Floor is an incredibly incredible singer, but it doesn't, but I just thought I loved the pop tone of Annette's voice. And, it was basically you know, a kind of pop, kind of yeah. commercial rock and roll. So, I mean, it, it so, felt like a strange fit for that band. And and I say that Dark Passion Play is my favourite Nightwish record, but she always felt a little bit out of step with what that band was. I thought. Yeah, but I, the songs the songs I found myself like guiltily liking are the really poppy ones. We don't so, have like, guilty pleasures here. Yeah, yeah, but so like <laughs> so like um I, I really like um the first track music because there's bits that remind me of Abba in it. Hmm. Okay. And, wow. And and that that's the and that's the kind of the, the element of um the, the really catchy stuff is the stuff that I like more Irish rather than just them for being epic because they're epic in a way that doesn't really mean anything much to me personally. I don't like I think you know Floor's got an incredible voice, he's you know, incredible narrator, um, but I don't feel any kind of personal sort of twins listening listening to it. It's just um, it's smooth, it's gracious, it's, it's graceful, um, it's uh, it, you know, it has it's incredible range, but it doesn't, as, but it doesn't have like an emotional. I don't get an emotional reaction. I think this is impressive. Mm. Um, what did and, you think of the? What did you think of the kind of instrumental half of the album? It's not, it's not totally instrumental. There's some there's some narrated passages on there. Uh, yeah. Vocals are used. There's a kind a of, lot, almost like a sound effect, fairly fleetingly. Um, again, a lot more strain than I thought a, a 30 minute instrumental would be. It, no, I, yeah, yeah um, I agree. Um, I think, I think you know, Tuomas, he holds it all in, um, you know, he keeps it all in rain. And so, again, it's, it's impressive. It's not like, oh my God, not, you know, another bunch of parping nonsense. It's not, <laughs> none of that at all. It's, um, it's, um, yeah, it, it, flow, it flows really nicely. Um, I think. I, I, think I, I think. I think it's. I think it's impressive, but um, I don't feel like one. It's not one of the kind of records that make me feel one of nature. Mm. I do like um, uh, the last track on the first album, "Endless," because it starts off with um, quite doomy and reminds me of all, how all the other Finnish bands did. The, really took on um, the kind of the northern doom of amorphous and it's got very kind of imperious marching kind of yeah yeah yeah. the the beginning is quite dooming doom laden and in a very in a very finnish you know translating sort of like paradise lost kind of way i think i think what you're saying about a lot of it not going over the top is what i mean when i say that the second half of the album could be i mean it sounds weird to compare something to lord of the rings and say it's not over the top but what i mean by that is if you said to me that Tuomas had written an instrumental side of an Irish album, I'd, I'd have assumed it was going to be ridiculously over the top, so pompous and, and all the rest of it. But listening to it, it's really not that different from a lot of the movie soundtracks I listen to. Um, so it still conjures that kind of, it still conjures very vivid imagery and, and does conjure quite an emotional reaction for me in some of the songs on there. But it, it never feels too self-indulgent, I guess. Yeah, it's it's definitely cinematic um, without question, uh, but but I think as Jonathan says, yeah, I mean, I, I think by Nightwish standards, restrained by other band standards, completely, you know, off the deep end. But <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I I, I I believe we've all watched Battlestar Galactica, and and if not, 
something to be right. rectified. Um, and then, well, I mean, then, then, then you will know, um, you know, the saying so well, all this has happened before and it will happen again. Mm -hmm. And if you uh, track the career of Nightwish, it's not entirely dissimilar from some of the biggest prog bands of the 1970s, you know, um, where it just sort of lived in that border territory with uh, symphonic music and it kind of had that sort of, uh, you know, feel to it all, you know, I mean, Nightwish have more in common with Yes than either band is probably willing to admit, but I think their trajectory creatively is actually very similar. Yeah, that, yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm sure uh, Thomas wouldn't be afraid to, to um, acknowledge that. And well, maybe he would. I don't know. He, I, can, I, never, I never quite know what that let's, guy's thinking. Let's, <laughs> let, let, let's, let's make him fight, yeah? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, my, exactly. Money's on Wakeman, but let's see, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, so, yeah, it, it's just a, it's a, it's a fucking great Nightwish album. I, found, I find it more... Um, I find myself more likely to indulge in this one than I have the past couple. Uh, I really like the instrumental side of it. I think it was... Uh, a bold decision that's paid off and doesn't feel too wanky or pompous um and uh again i think you know as a lead single noise even though that's by far the kind of most straight ahead catchy song on there i can see that being a massive massive song for them moving forward maybe more than anything off the last record um although i know alan was pretty big uh so yeah a night where human nature is out uh, on Friday, this very Friday, via Nuclear Blast Records. And there's some other stuff out this week as well, of course. New albums by Revulsion, Benighted, and Caligram, if you want stuff a bit heavier and more extreme. Uh, there's a new Dual album, so if you like your kind of uh, shimmering, stonery kind of stuff, I would definitely get on that Dual record. Um, Jim Davis, who used to play guitar in The Prodigy and Pitch Shifter, has an album out now as well, and it is very much in the vein of those uh, artists. So if that sounds up your street, Go check that out. Um, and yeah, if you want to read uh, Ali Cooper's big old 9 out of 10 review, that's in the new issue of Metal Hammer that's out right now as well. Uh, right. Gloves off, innit, boys? <laughs> yeah, I've had butterflies. I've had butterflies for like the last 40 minutes. Oh, gosh. You know, I feel like I, I, I'm going to go run around the house for a second. The good thing is, is that I think I know... Knowing you both, I think I know what your thoughts are going to be, but I'm, I'm wondering if I might, I don't know. I'm just fascinated to see where this goes. So we're going to do uh, the second incarnation of the Metal Hammer Podcast Hall of Fame. For those that didn't catch the last one, we did a Marilyn Manson one at the end of last year uh, because of a few different things. Most recently, um, coronavirus fucking and everything for everyone. Uh, we were going to do this a few weeks back, um, but we're going to do this right now. Uh, so the way this works is... Uh, if you go to the Mount Hummer Facebook uh, readers group, which is facebook.com slash Mount Hummer readers, every so often we'll throw a band out there. Uh, we'll make all our lovely readers and followers vote on their whole discography and the two most pow uh, powerful, the two <laughs> most popular albums uh, as voted for by you guys. We will then go on to debate and the album that we um, all here on the podcast vote through uh, will be entered into the entirely fictional, but I promise you completely prestigious uh, Metal Hammer Podcast Hall of Fame. Uh, last time out, we put, Ho oh no, we didn't put Hollywood. I wanted to put Hollywood in. We put Antichrist Superstar by Marilyn Manson in. Um, and today, an Iron Maiden album is going to join that. Uh, the two albums that you guys voted for, I, I've got to say, actually, I'm just going to oh. get this off my chest. I was, I, for, for a while there, it looked like Brave New World was going to make it in, and I was really, really stoked about it. <laughs> and then it fell off a cliff. It's a hell of a record. Uh, can, I, can, I just, can I stop this? 
can I stop this before we begin? Yes. It's like, it's like, it's like making somebody choose a child, you know, it's just like literally what, which leg would you, you know, lop off? I mean, <laughs> which eyeball do you not use as much kind of thing? Yeah, you know, um, this, this is cruel. This is sadistic. Um, the, the, the reader group, uh, you know, I hope they know what they've done to us uh, by by forcing us to make this decision. Honestly, I, I, it's it's just uh, it's it. Oh gosh, I'm not, it feels know, like not sure I can do this. It feels like you're like a Trump type. It feels like you're Donald Trump type father just making your kids fight amongst each other. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder. I wonder when the first Donald Trump comparison will get made. And I wasn't calling. Oh. I wasn't calling it for a maiden poll. So God, God, oh man! You know what? Um, ah, this is just going to be like a running thing now because now it's all I can think about. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> we let's just yeah. Uh, Metal Hammer. We have the best words. <laughs> oh yes. Um, oh no! Where's that gone? Come back. Come back. Uh, oh, I just got the poll up so we could have a look at it. But yes, um, so we we polled every single Iron Maiden album in existence to the Mount Hamarida group yeah. for this. Um, most albums got a vote in, which are th- at least one vote in, which I think goes to show you uh, show you how popular Maiden's discography has been across their whole career, and just how much different albums mean different things to different people. Um, uh, yeah, just looking through the results now um interestingly the only albums that didn't get a vote were the last two so i don't know what's going on there because those albums fucking rule <laughs> i was wearing my final frontier t-shirt literally yesterday uh, um yeah, but yeah the, the blaze album's got some votes the paul diano album's got some votes a matter of life and death polled quite highly uh, as i said brave new world looked like it might be in the conversation which we, i would have loved because that was the first maiden album <clears> I to. um but there can only be two for this and the two that you guys decided we'd have to debate a power slave and seventh son of a seventh son. Um, maybe not that surprising as the two albums to make it through that, you know, power slave. Um, well, let's just go into it full heartedly. Let's start with power slave, uh, maiden's fifth album, third with Bruce Dickinson, of course, at the helm. Um, interestingly, this was the first maiden album ever at the time to feature the same lineup, as the one before it. Uh, so Bruce, Steve, Adrian, Dave, Nico uh, were all on peace of mind. They all came back for Power Slave. Um, so what I guess we were seeing at this point was the Maiden Machine really clicking into gear, having some stability in the ranks for the first time um, and uh, really powering forward and making a record that, I mean, you know, this, this is all about personal preference, but in terms of their kind of legacy, Power Slave has got to be a shout for the definitive Iron Maiden record, hasn't it? You know, it's um, it's difficult to uh, you know choose Maiden records uh, one over the other simply because um, the longevity of their career and how so many different albums represent completely different creative tentpoles for where the band was. And so you, you find that they kind of compete with their own legacy, you know? And so, um, you know, the, 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 the thing that makes it so glorious to be a, a, an Iron Maiden fan is that you can totally connect with younger generations of Iron Maiden fans for whom something like a matter of life and death is their first Iron Maiden record, which completely trips me out because it feels like it came out yesterday, but that's because I'm literally as old as time, but, um, you know, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, 
if we're saying this is our desert island disc, you can only choose one Iron Maiden record, that's one question. However, were you to say, what is the definitive record? Um, that could be seen as another, you know, and I, and I'm, I'm just going to sort of like string this suspense out just a little bit longer here. No, no. Oh, we will. We're going to, we're going to milk this for all it's worth. Okay. So, so how, how, what is the rationale for choosing when you say best? Is it the definitive? Is it your personal favorite? Is it the one that you argue? I mean, uh, you know, uh, give me some rules here. Well, I'm going to say, um, not to leave it, not to kind of, uh, shirk my responsibilities <laughs> but i kind of think you can we can we can take best as um however we like i mean to, to draw the comparison when we did marilyn manson l was very pro mechanical animals purely because she felt that song for song it was the best collection of songs marilyn manson had ever put together which i think is probably true um steve on the other hand uh felt that antichrist superstar is the Manson album. It was the album that defined him. It was the album that introduced him to the world at large. Um, and it's probably the album that hit the benchmark for him will always be put against. Um, I was, Holy Wood was the masterpiece myself. Well, I agree that, I mean, again, you know, my first choice didn't make it into that one either. So whatever. Okay, so, so so it sounds to me like maybe what you're saying is, um, you know, uh, so there's an academic response that we can give. Uh, and there's also yeah. maybe like, so, or, or we could, we could imagine a, a completely hypothetical situation where you're forced to self-isolate. You can only go out for essential activities and you're only allowed one Iron Maiden record to choose from. So maybe that's the one we're going with. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm I think so. I mean, I, I know what my choice is going to be for this and I can't really, I don't think I can answer your point without giving it away. But, um, uh, I, I, yeah. Let's just say, let's just say, yeah, if you have to choose one that you want to listen to for the rest of your life, this is the podcast hall of fame. This is not necessarily the definitive, you know, this, this ain't the rock and roll hall of fame. This isn't like the Grammys. This is, this is our list. We can do what we want with it. <laughs> oh man, let's do this. Okay. I'm really shirking my responsibilities here. I'm not committed no, to it at all. No, but, uh, we're, uh, we're aboard the little Cessna. The door has opened. <laughs> <laughs> the, the parachute instructor is pointing at us and he is saying, you've got to jump now. Yeah, we're going in. Well, let's, let's do it. Let's just take both albums separately, talk them through, and then we'll do something of a vote um, at the end, shall we? Uh, so, uh, yeah, as I said, Power Slave, um, released in 1984. Third album with Bruce. Really feels like a record where the band hit their stride. Um, the kind of more, I guess... You know, we, we'd already seen them more from this kind of punkier, more urgent uh, young metal band into this more kind of epic and gung-ho uh, kind of outfit. Um, and I feel like Power Slave was the album where that kind of more gung-ho, fun, uh, epic, um, almost fantastical, you could almost say, aspect of the band really started to come into play. Um, uh, I mean, if we kind of take it from top to bottom... Surely Ace is High and Two Minutes to Midnight is the greatest one-two of any Maiden album in history. I was just about to say that. Mm -hmm. But also, if you can hear on, um, on Ace is High, them kind of like, they've still got that kind of, those riffs, it's still got that kind of punk element. So you can mm. see them kind of slurring it, sounding those riffs off and almost like evolving in real time. So it's still got that element of early, uh, element of early Maiden in it. Like in the, in the kind of, the, the sort of the bite of the riffs. Mm. Um, especially at the, at the beginning of Ace's High. Yeah, and I mean, to go from that, Ace's High is um, seen as 
probably the greatest maiden set opener. It's just such a vital track of theirs. Like it's got so much love um, in the maiden community and rightly so. And then to go from that into two minutes to midnight is, I, I would argue my first, um, I don't want to say negative, but my first kind of potentially contentious point is that I think that sets the bar so high for this record that following it up with that instrumental, Lost for Words, is an in, in hindsight, is an interesting choice, I think. Thoughts, gentlemen? I guess it yeah. has to coast a little bit after that. But, That's, um, yeah. You know, but I think, you know, there's elements, but I think, because, yeah, after that, but I think Lost for Words and Flash of the Blade, they, they do something different from the intensity. Like, the way they use the twin leads, especially in Flash of the Blade, it's, um, and the duelist actually as well too. There's, it's this very similar thing, that, you know, to what Thin Lizzy do. Um, there's this kind of, there's a kind of ease with which the twin leads kind of ring out. Mm. Um, but I actually, on those three, on those, especially on Flash of the Blade and the duelists, I prefer the way that Thin Lizzy do it. Yeah, and you know, I, I think that, you know, we have to um, obviously, you know, consider the time that this was released in and how most people were actually consuming their music. I mean, it was vinyl, you know, or it was cassette. And so, you know, the way that people listen to an Iron Maiden record, you know, would have been incredibly linear, you know, and I, I will confess, um, I listen to most Maiden tracks these days out of sequence because you're usually kind of going for those ones. But, you know, there there is a... There is a, a logic to the sequencing here. I think you're absolutely right, Jonathan. But I, I guess that's the thing. It's like, I, I think this is the record where Iron Maiden mm -hmm. go from being a band set amongst the new wave of British heavy metal, and they go into the phase where they simply become something that Jonathan, I think, brilliantly described years and years ago and still stays with me, the creation of, you know, what, what he called Maiden World, you know, um, suddenly Maiden became their own planetary system, you know, with, um, you know, their own creative orbits. And it just didn't matter what anyone else was doing. And I think this is really where that, that, that sense becomes very, very apparent to me. Yeah. It's interesting that you, uh, you both made uh, very important points about how music was being consumed then, because I actually made a point to listen to both these records on vinyl before we started this podcast, because you just get a much better feel of how the album was structured and um, how it would have been consumed at the time. Um, and that will actually bring me to a point with Seven Sun a bit later on. Um, but it's just interesting because Ace is High and Two Minutes to Midnight are just so the two tracks that everyone talks about from this record. I think people forget about that really interesting portion afterwards where, you, you know, like you said, Jonathan, you've got Lost Words, you've got Flash of the Bay, you've got The Duelist, you've got those fun kind of twin leads playing off each other. Um, it feels a bit more gung-ho and pacey and um, not knockabout, but kind of like just fun kind of uh, like off-the-cuff maiden dueling, which is really good fun. Yeah. And you go on to side two, um, and you, you touch down with Back in the Village and then Power Slave into Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Really kind of like you can almost see the kind of film they've crafted, like reaching its climax with those two tracks at the and, end. And especially Rhyme. Yeah, I think Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner also sound because you know, the, the main, the core riff of Rhyme and Power Slave, they're quite similar. So it really, so Ancient Mariner at the yeah, beginning, it, it, um, it really does sound like an extension of, of the title track, Power Slave. Mm. That's an interesting um, um, that, So yeah, I just, I just think though, like, like with Flash of the Blades, I think, and, um, and the Duelist, like 
the reason why I think like Thin Lizzy did those twin leads better at the time is well, there's something about Thin Lizzy that they do something for me that no other band does. And the minute I hear Thin Lizzy, everything feels all right with the world. That everything feels connected together. There's that kind of ease with with which Phil Lynott sings, and um, it's got its earthiness, but it's got its total ease. But I think on um, on like the duelists because there's a lot so much pace going on and especially i want to talk about this later on about steve house's bass in this album mm. um i think i think i think that kind of ease of the twin leads and the, and the busyness of, of of what else is going on in the song they 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 don't quite conjoin together they don't quite play off each other and um and so it doesn't it doesn't put you in the center in quite doesn't center you in quite the same way that thin lizzie do when they, when they use twin leads Hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that, Alex? Yeah, I, I, I you know, I, I certainly don't disagree. And I, I think, you know, at the time, I mean, the, the, the first time I heard the Power Slave record, and you know, funnily enough, um, it was not the first Iron Maiden record I heard. Um, I would have been eight years old at the time. You know, I, I kind of went back, and I, I wasn't really kind of intellectualizing it, you know, to that extent. It just all sounded you know, just unlike anything else I'd really heard, you know, because when I was beginning to listen to things was in the late eighties and it just felt absolutely unique. And of course, you know, being that age, the first thing that would have been apparently wouldn't have been the twin leads. It probably would have been like, is this the same? Is this, is this, is this about the Ridley Scott film about all the fencing and all that kind of stuff? And, and, and I suppose, um, you know, just there is a young boyhood or girlhood imagination that just sort of gets peaked by all these things. And so um, there, there's still an incredible sense of fun, you know, that's kind of happening here because, you know, I mean, throughout all of, you know, Maiden's career, you get the distinct sense that, you know, it reflects, uh, you know, one or two band members VHS collection, you know, and that's, that's what makes it all kind of brilliant. But, you know, I mean, we, we've already talked about, you know, you've invoked the name of Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I mean, literally, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it could be just the sound of broken glass for 45 minutes. And then they do Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And it yeah. would probably still exist in the same kind of lofty mental bracket, um, you know, as, as it would otherwise, simply because, I mean, you're talking about a, a 13, nearly 14 minute I mean, just what, what do you even call it? I mean, it's, it's just, it's just so out there and brilliant. Um, I'm sorry to skip ahead, but, um, I know it, it's all good. I mean, you have, we, it's just unignorable, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's big. It's big. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally the longest song they've written to that point by some distance, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's funny because I came into Maiden through Brave New World in the early 2000s, like I think many of a certain ilk did because it was when Bruce came back and there was so much fanfare about it. And so by the time they actually got around to playing some of these tracks live for the first time, it was seen as a massive, massive deal. And my favorite gig I have ever been to was Maiden at Twickenham in 2008 when they did the, uh, the um, Somewhere Back in Time tour. Uh, and the thing everybody was talking about at the time before they started the the actual tour itself was they're bringing back rhyme and the ancient mariner they're doing rhyme and the ancient mariner again um and even now you know they they've beaten that record for longest song i think twice over since then um but it's still just such a towering achievement for what they did and just the kind of the scope of doing a near 14 minute song um about um uh, you know a, a, a poem from the 1800s uh, by samuel taylor coleridge uh, quoting passages from it uh, and everything else it's just so ambitious and so epic and in the hands of a lesser band it could have 
it could have ended up turning into a bloated farce, but instead it turned into one of the the single greatest achievements that metal produced in the eighties. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you're completely right. I mean, so much of what I think I made were doing in their uh, in the eighties. Um, was very reflective of the the musical vocabulary they were acquiring as music fans in the 1970s, right? You know, and, and of course, a lot of that, it wasn't rock music, it wasn't just metal music, it was um, obviously a lot of, you know, what we call prog music as well, you know, and, and so to see them kind of like, you know, in, you know, invoke something of that scale is, is pretty pretty impressive but it also bespeaks a band who knew who their fans were because you know uh like you say a lesser band could have done it really badly and really alienated people like what are you doing but no instead you know it was just it i think it's just it, it was just the creation of legend you know and it was just so so important for them as a turning point absolutely and i think we should also mention the the, the real kind of imagery um around around power slave as well um i think that you know the pharaoh eddie still remains arguably by some distance the most iconic eddie they ever produced certainly amongst maiden fans at least um you know their show was getting bigger and bigger by that point but i think it's probably fair to say that the power slave era was the first time where it felt like they were they were bringing a show it was an unmissable huge kind of like stage set and all various fucking shit going on all over the place like they took things to a level to which not just they but in many ways um a lot of metal hadn't done to that point I think it's also the I think it's the cover as well. I mean, not not just the Eddie, but the whole cover itself. Like mm. you know, those kind of Egyptian colours are really strong. That kind of that that geometry, it, it really pulls you into the. Um, you know, it's got such a like a central sort of um, you know point of origin. You know, point of origin. So um, it really pulls you into the sleeve. Mm. Um, also, something about Ancient Mariner as well is that it's um, it's also like in a weird kind of way a microcosm of the whole pace of the album. The way it sort of starts off really strong, you know, gets a bit more, you know, uh, get, gets a bit more chilled out. Then the way it kind of all pulls it all back together again. Uh, it's what Maiden always really big, good, really good at is just when the, all, the whole band kind of follow each other, and you feel the whole thing sort of, and you feel the whole machine kind of clicking together again. And uh, you know, I love those metronomic riffs when um, when Power Slave kind of, well, sorry, when Ancient Mariner kind of really sort of kicks in again. Yes, absolutely. What What do you think of the kind of uh, you know where their show kind of went to at that point as well? Because it because it feels like that kind of set the standard for what everyone expected of a maiden show from then on. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, maiden don't do bad shows, do they? So no, but no, but I'm talking about in terms of the stage set and the kind of you know the ancient Egyptian theme. Like it felt after that point that the 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 theme of Eddie and the theme of the stage show and the theme of the album was a massive part of their identity in a way. Yeah. Maybe it hadn't been quite up to that point. Well, the first time I saw Maiden live was, was up in Newcastle. And um, yeah, Dickinson, Bruce Dickinson was in jeans. There wasn't really much of a stage set and they just brought a big Eddie on at the end. So um, mm-hmm. that was kind of a, by Maiden standards, that was a fairly low bar. So I'm always like, but every, I don't know, every Maiden show I've seen, I, I love the, um, I love the Final Frontier set. Um, they, you don't want them to be doing the same thing every time, but it, yeah, of course, it is spectacular, and it is as far as imagery goes, it's very definitive. Mm. Thoughts, Alex? 
Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to pull this out of just, you know, the album talk, but into, you know, kind of like the, the, the history of Maiden, but um, you know, it's it, it so, what's so cool to note about this record is that they, you know, this was obviously part of like a much bigger plan because they were about to embark on, you know, just like, you know, in the, in the annals of rock and metal history, there are a few tours that, you know, invoke the same kind of sense of scale and ambition that the world slavery tour, you know, invokes, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, nearly 200 shows, 28 countries. I mean, it's just a, an unbelievable feat. You know, I mean, just like Maiden went from being a successful band to a, um, you know, I guess they were just, they were just world dominating by that point. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's just so interesting to think, you know, that um, this is something that happened just in a few short years. I mean, just like, I mean, this is a band on a stratospheric consent uh, a, a stratospheric ascent, I should say, and um, you know, uh, uh, you know, things like Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, a lesser band wouldn't be able to pull off. A lesser band would not do that at that point in their career. They'd be doing what they can to get as big as possible, but instead they were doing the thing that they always did so well, which was sort of like defy commercial expectation and just get bigger and bigger in the process somehow. And I think that created a bond between them and their fans that I think exists to this day. It's just a feeling of trust that if Maiden are doing it, then it feels like the right thing somehow. Absolutely. And it's something that they just carried with them. Uh, well, so right now, as a matter of fact, they've just never stopped with that kind of ambition and, and vision. Um, let's move on to Seven Sun then. And, and I think before we do it, it's, it's can crucial. Say, can I just say one caveat about, um, okay. about uh, Power Slave and everyone's going to want to kill me? Please. Well, I have one issue. I have one major issue with Power Slave. Oh. And it's Steve House's bass on this album. Oh. What? Okay. <laughs> Let me go with this. It's, it's so, like, his bass on this album is, uh, you know, it's so over busy. He just wants to get in every nook and cranny. And he, he just plays too many notes that seem to be not always going where the song needs to go. On this album, you can hear, and there's there's bits in there's a there's a drop out in Powerslave. Yeah, there's a there's a drop off in Powerslave where it sounds like he's playing a different song because he just he's just he's just getting it. it the bass sounds really taut and tight. That's a kind of essential. It, it it sounds quite preapic, and it's just it's just busy bouncing around everywhere. And I think he I think the bass on some of the tracks here they're a bit overplayed. And once I hear it, I can't get it out of my head. It just rattles around a little bit too much. Good grief! That's that's that's. Uh, that is, I know. He's I know. I know. Um, views on here. I, 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 I know this is this is an outlier position, but um, and I don't really feel it the same way on on other albums, but I do on Power Slave. And um, just once you start f focusing on his bass, it just kind of takes your attention off from other from other aspects of the album. It's not always going with the groove. It's, sometimes it's just um fitting in too much for the groove. Wow. I'm going to have to read about Power Slave. I am going to have to listen to Power Slave again over a beer and uh, consider uh, consider Steve Harris's bass playing. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm going to have to do the same and consider Jonathan an ex-friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, of course not. So yeah, we will we will move on to Seven Sun now. Okay, we could do a whole podcast on one of these albums, really, couldn't we each? Um, I think it's really important to acknowledge uh, the album that came between Power Slave and Seven Sun, which was Somewhere in Time, because that was the album that really saw them start to like ramp up the synth and the keyboards, um, guitar synthesizers and all that kind of business. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, it was a controversial move. It might, it might seem strange now, but it was a controversial move for a lot of their fan base um, that they did that. Uh, you know, Somewhere in Time has aged very well. It's a very beloved album of theirs now. Um, but those kind of elements were something that they definitely brought into Seventh Son. Uh, and not only that, but I mean, this is kind of the point where it felt like Maiden started to go full prog. Um, you know, it's conceptually very heavy. Uh, there's uh, more long songs on there. Things, the, the title track clock's in at nine minutes and there's real sprawling kind of proggy um, story-esque masterpiece. Um, yeah. Where should we start? <laughs> well, uh, man, I mean, I, I, I'm going to try to do this without giving away what my choice is here. You know, it's, um, it's right. difficult. It's difficult. So, you know, um, can we begin with the artwork? Yes, let's. Okay. Because, uh, you know, I have a very personal story, which you guys have probably heard, uh, you know, a hundred times. But yeah, I mean, I, I will never forget the moment that I discovered and fell in love with Iron Maiden. And it, it was the artwork. I, I, I had seen them before. My parents had brought home a Betamax, thereby securing my status as definitely the coolest kid on the block with the superior format that everybody adopted. No, they didn't, of course. Um, there was a there was a sample videotape on there with the video for Run to the Hills, but it, it kind of went over my head a little bit, you know. Um, but my mother was having her hair done, and there was a record shop across the way, and they had a big Seventh Son of a Seventh Son poster in there, and I remember being utterly transfixed just sitting there. It was like a spotlight was down on me, and I uh, I I remember just kind of absorbing every detail, but being repulsed by the imagery. And going home that day and asked my dad, who gave me a very thoughtful answer to what an Iron Maiden is. But, you know, it, it just, it lodged something in my brain that to this day has never uh, gone away, which is just a fascination with Maiden. And, and, it, and it started there. I mean, that weird disembodied kind of cybernetic awfulness, you know, which I'm convinced that the Borg Queen from Star Trek Contact, uh, First Contact, um, you know, they, I think they ripped it off from, from, from that album cover. Oh man, I've never thought that before. I can't, I can't, I can't verify it. I just, I'm not, you know, I'm just saying. That's spot on. But what an album cover. And uh, I mean, well, I mean, I, I, I got to hand the mic over because uh, uh, we have to talk about the music again. In as Donald Trump would say, bigly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let's try and not invoke <laughs> donald trump too much <laughs> we'll get the wrong idea <laughs> um yeah i mean for me this was the album uh that um i think this was this the first album i went back to after i got into maiden it might have been uh but yeah just coming off of um brave new world and then i probably would have picked up a number of the beasts to be fair and then delving into this era it's just like fascinating what they decided to do with this record um oh yeah let's go for it song by song opening with Moonchild, uh that kind of iconic strummed opening um with bruce singing delicately over the top uh and then the just the tone of that guitar as it comes in is just it's just oh, i was i was thinking the same thing like how much i love that guitar tone on, on, on across the whole album yeah, mm. yeah, it's it's real, it's real kind of lush, warm kind of feeling that they hadn't yeah. quite invoked in the same way before, um, and and yeah, I mean, I think if we're making comparisons early on, I think Moonchild is a classic opener. It's hard to compare any song to Ace's High, for instance, um, but the run of songs that come after that on the you know if we again treat this as it was meant to be consumed on the first half of the record, 
Um, infinite dreams into can I play with madness into the evil that men do is pretty phenomenal. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess, I mean, just if you're a Maiden fan up until this point, I mean, it's just, it's absolute manna from heaven. I mean, I, I could just imagine people freaking out and just doing little dances around in the rooms when this first came out who had listened to it from the beginning and just thought, what are this band on right now? Because it was just, uh, yeah, I mean, just end to end, I think it's it's not just, it's not just that it's it conceptually hangs together, you know, just so beautifully. I mean, because there, I mean, there's just so many parts of it that you know all feel kind of pompous and huge. But yeah, it's it, it's just got it's got pace and it's got tone, and you know, their longtime producer Martin Birch, I think, just just brought the best out of them. And you know, I think, you know, I can't give my choice away yet. But I can tell you this, you know, I mean, I think this is I, I think this album for me is the uh, uh, the ultimate expression of, you know, a, a band at their creative peak, you know, just just absolutely setting the bar on what they can achieve and what most bands dream of achieving. Yeah, definitely. And and, and in terms of the, stru- the song structure, um, again, talking about that thing of an album being into side one, side two, uh, you look at Power Slave that had that run of like we talked about earlier, Lost for Words, Flash of the Blade, The Duelist, more kind of bouncy, gung-ho, fun songs and then coming back with back in the village which is a you know a bit more epic and a bit more almost a bit kind of like a sinister vibe to it um this this album uh, finishes side one with the evil that men do which for me might have the most emotional hook that maiden have ever written it really like that again that guitar tone really gets under your skin and pulls at you um it feels so urgent and just vivid and um like i said emotional and then it comes back in on side two with Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, which is really where this album goes full prog, nearly 10 minutes long, just this winding um, kind of narrative, uh, super proggy, Bruce Dickinson in his storytelling element um, vibe. Uh, I mean, I think this was absolutely a Steve Harris song, if I'm not mistaken, and and you can kind of see where he would take this kind of structure moving forwards. but yeah, I, I just think it's a really interesting dynamic to finish with Evil That Men Do and then come back into Seven Sun. What do you guys think about that portion of the album? Because it's two very different sides of what this album has to offer, I feel. Yeah, I think uh, the Evil That Men Do, I think it, it does have that martial quality in the same way that um, uh, Blood Brothers does. Mm. You know, I think those are the two most emotional songs. But yeah, it feels like it's the end of one chapter. And the beginning of an X, which is what exactly what a you know a vinyl record should do. Uh, I mean, I think it's almost what we should probably talk about. Can I play with madness as well? Because it's it's one of their biggest singles, and um, it's one of their strangest songs in a lot of ways. Because the way the chorus comes in on that track is quite jarring, almost. Do you know what I mean? It just kind of gate crashes into the song rather than kind of flows into it, um, and then it does that weird key change where it just goes off on one. Um, and, I, and I'm saying this picking what, in my opinion, is a run of 10 out of 10 songs, one after the other, really. But I would actually say on that first half of the record, Can I Play With Madness is probably, how can I put this, the slightly least brilliant <laughs> of the songs. <laughs> I disagree. You disagree? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I, I, I think, I know what you mean about like being, you know, a little bit giant, but I think the whole, the whole song feels really live. And like I said before on um, on ancient Rhyme of the Mariner, is when they all suddenly get a cue and they all follow each other and they all just like suddenly like ramp up together and you can feel this energy like going throughout the band. 
And it's like, in, in any other hands, you know, there's a danger that a song like that and some of those rhythms could be a bit workmanlike. But when you see the whole band, like, becoming, you know, all getting this cue and like following each other in, into the, when it, when it sort of increases the pace, it becomes, you know, the, the machine just moves so smoothly, it becomes more than the sum of its parts. Mm. Um, and there's a nice symmetry on that record as well, too, like with the, um, you know, it just, so I just think that record already holds together. And I think the, um, the change of the tempo, like the, the, when it shifts up, it really pulls you with it. And because you can feel the whole band pulling with the, with the change of tempo. And so I absolutely love that song. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to be clear, I think it's one of the greatest heavy metal songs ever written. I just, I just happen to think it's in a bed of some of the greatest heavy metal songs ever written. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, second half of the album uh, has a slightly different pace and feel to the first, I feel. Um, obviously starts with Seven Sun, which I remember, I remember watching uh, the first time I ever saw them play this, I'm pretty sure, was at Sonosphere um, when... Bruce started doing the kind of slick down like Misfits mohawk and getting a trench coat out and just absolutely living in the moment of this, the story of this track. Um, and then it goes into The Prophecy, which is a slightly different vibe to some of the other songs. It's a little bit more like not, I don't want to say plodding because that sounds negative, but it's maybe one of the more overlooked songs on this album. Um, the clairvoyance an absolute classic obviously and i think only the good die young again there's just something about the guitar tone they've got on this record that's really emotional and just feels really urgent and vital and the way that well, the way the kind of that frantic um ending to the record that this track brings i think is um is really powerful and very very different to what they were doing for instance with rhyme of the ancient mariner yeah i think there's something else i really love about this record that is that it's really of its time. Like you can hear like the eighties gloss sort of getting under the skin of it. Uh, like some, you know, this, you know, Seventh Sun has those kind of like slightly glossy, glossy keys feel to it. Um, there's even a moment early on, we could almost imagine the disco beat underneath Seventh Sun. Yeah. <laughs> it just, and, um, it's, you know, it's, and it's, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, so I, I love, so I love the fact that it's, you know, it's kind of, it's got this element of its time, like that kind of, that sort of, this kind of 80s gloss that just seems to be swimming under the surface of the whole album. And it, but it makes it a lot more live and sensual, I think. And sometimes things that we have, you know, they're of their time, that's what makes them really timeless. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned the time, Jonathan. I mean, I, uh, I actually, uh, I pulled up a list because um, I was kind of curious, I mean, because it's always important, I think, to kind of situate things, you know, in their own times and to sort of understand mm -hmm. the context, right? And and when you consider what else was happening in 1988, you know, um, you know, Rick Astley, you know, had a number one with Never Gonna Give You Up, you know, um, you know, Richard Marks was huge. Obviously, there was a lot of rock in the charts, but there was a lot of, you know, enormous sort of, uh, you know, ultra produced kind of pop music you know and so you know it, it kind of makes you appreciate what maiden were doing not just because of what it was in its own right but because of what it sort of stood against you know just like where the grain was in terms of popular music and and, and let's not forget rock metal were in a very different place in the 1980s you know um you know that th this this music 
was not something that people felt, you know, protective of. It was as big as it could possibly get, right? And Maiden were achieving enormous commercial success, you know, um, uh, huge creative expression, doing something that completely flew in the face of anything else that was kind of happening. I mean, it's no disrespect to Billy Ocean, but man, I mean, th th this is a this is a record that was sort of, you know, proudly defiant of any of that. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes it kind of cool to consider now is what they were doing was so self-consciously different and not because they wanted to be, but because that's who they were. Mm. It, yeah that's a that's a really important point absolutely like maiden of i think one of the things that defines them and is why they have always managed to stay so important to metal fans is that they just never compromised on a single thing um uh and and, and this i believe went to number one in the album charts in the uk which is insane really i mean because now we're obviously because maiden is such a big deal now and they've kind of become an absolute franchise um that you you kind of would expect them to be getting a number one album just because they're so huge they're second only to metallica as easily the second biggest metal band of all time and whoever's next in that line is far far behind them but at this point in time for a band to be doing that kind of weird shit and landing one number one albums is amazing isn't it yeah. I mean, like, I mean, like Alex said before, they, you know, they were in their own creative bubble. So I don't know if it was kind of defiant. It's just like impervious to everything else that was going on. Because 88, there was a lot going on, like musically, not, you know, not just in the charts, but on the sort of alternative side of things. But like for, for indie music, 88 was one of the greatest years ever, like the Young Gods and Skinny Puppy. And there was so much innovation going on on the sort of on the underground scene as well, too. But Iron Maiden were just like, like they like said, in this own bubble and purpose to everything. They just, they, they're like this self-feeding machine in a way that, you know, develops and evolves on its own terms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything else any of you guys want to say about either Power Slave or Seven Son of Seven Son before we get to the, the votes none of us want to have to make? Oh. Just, just, just in Seven Son, there's some chance in it that really remind me of Emperor, like Circa... Nightside eclipse. Interesting. That's a, that's a really uh, interesting point. You know, well, um, you know, I think it's going to have to have to be asked of Ishan whether that's where it comes from. You know, I I certainly wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. But I think the moment has come. The moment has indeed come. Two, just we 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 are not comparing two fantastic Maiden albums. We are literally comparing two of the greatest, two of the single greatest metal records ever made. I mean, if you were compiling a list where you could, uh, you know, put as many choices by individual bands as you wanted. These will both have a shout at being very, 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 very high in the all-time great list for metal. Um, this is not an easy decision. I'm going to start with Alex. I think. Oh, I thought you were going <laughs> to choose. I thought you were going to say your choice. Oh no, no, no. Yeah. No, I'm not Basically, saying I'm going to go last necessarily. I'm just interested to see how this, I'm just want to drag this out <laughs> for the drama as much as I can. Alex, yeah. if you had to choose, remember, this is not, doesn't have to be your favorite album necessarily. It could, or it could be, it couldn't be, but this is the album that will be forever cemented. <sighs> podcast, Hall of Fame. Power Slave or Seven Son of a Seven Son? You, you, you're basically, so, so you're, you're, you're sitting there, there's someone with a gun to your head. You have the two records in front of you and they say, now smash one. Yeah. 
right? This is this is the this is the brutality. It is not choosing one. It is not choosing the other. Exactly. That's Very well put. So hard. And I genuinely so think it's going to be the hardest two albums to choose from in their catalog, just because of the pure song power, what they both meant for them at the time. Okay. Tough one. Seven Son of a Seven Son has to win it for me. Has to win it for me. Has to. Wow. There, I said it. It's inside. It cannot be I'm taken so back. No, it's done. It's written on my forehead for all time. <laughs> Jonathan, what is your decision? As much as um, Power Slave has some of the most classic Maiden songs there'll ever be, um, as a whole, as an album, I'm going to have to also go for Seventh Son of the Seventh Son. And also just because I love, I love that, that crisp red and guitar tone. It goes so well with the cover as well. Um, yeah, just, uh, I'm sorry, but yes, I'm Seventh Son too. Wow, uh, gentlemen, that is actually a clean sweep for Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. <laughs> hey. was, uh, Alex was the one I was least sure of. I did wonder if you might go Power Slave on us, which is why I went with us first. But um, yeah, I think... I mean, you know a band's special when you've got Power Slave in a vote off and it doesn't get a single vote <laughs> because it's, it's just that good. <laughs> yeah, but you, you know, gosh, you know, um, I'm so pleased that, you know, uh, I don't have to delete either of your numbers from my phone. <laughs> we can well, hang out again when when that's again possible. Um, Jonathan's is under uh, is under review because of his comments. Really? Space. <laughs> go, go back and listen to it and, um, and, and tell, me if, tell me if there's not something in there. But, but no. do we all agree on that? Yeah. That's the question. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but I think I think Seventh Son is pretty much flawless, a flawless record. I'd have to agree. It's just an, it's it's such. I think it it manages the very unique feat that maybe we sometimes take for granted of you can pick any one song out of it and it would belong on a Maiden greatest hits or you know a Maiden best songs mix. But as a as a complete journey through an album, it absolutely works as a whole as well. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, I completely agree. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, from the artwork to the final note, um, you know, um, to me, you know, this, this could you know, be seen as a little unfair, but, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I think of Iron Maiden's history in, in chapters, uh, you know, and uh, I, I guess in many ways, for me, this is the peak moment for Iron Maiden chapter one you know creatively um it, it is the ultimate expression of what they are if someone asked me um you know what is iron maiden um i'm not sure if it's the first record that i would give to them mm. because it is a lot to take on but as an iron maiden fan um you know i i have to say that you know this has to stand in in chapter one i think is their proudest moment we mentioned brave new world um, because I mean, just like what what an incredible comeback record, you know. And it is not to be that sneering gray beard going. You know what? This was something that I experienced, and younger generations can't have their own records. Everyone's entitled to their favorites. Yeah. Um, but when you line everything up end to end, you know, I have to say this is just a top of the proverbial pyramid. And uh, you know, I uh, it, it is an album that I can I can say I still go back to today, and I'm still wowed by what they've done incredible yeah i know what i'm going to be listening to as soon as we finish recording this podcast for the second time today um all right Whew. i feel good that that's off our chest guys we did it oh. thank fuck now we can all we just go back down. to enjoy them all equally so uh seven son of a seven son joins antichrist superstar in the Hum podcast hall of fame um stay tuned to facebook.com slash readers where we will reveal uh, the next band that we will be debating 
which will come along, I think, sooner rather than later. Um, let's run through some reader questions. If you want to come ask us some questions for the podcast or just hang out with us generally, um, it's the same address I just mentioned, facebook.com slash readers. Um, we're doing some great stuff. We did our first Mario Kart tournament the other week. That was really good fun. We'll do another one of those soon. Um, loads of great debates and conversations and recommendations and playlists getting played in there. Really appreciate the community we've got building there. And uh, we're all going to get through this thing together down there. Um, I think I know the answer to this question as far as you two are concerned, you know. Mark Baker asks, do any of you play an instrument? How about a Mount Hummer band to keep us going through the dark times? <laughs> Jonathan? I used to play classical guitar when I was a kid. Oh, um, yeah, I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, I took lessons. Um, I got to book two of tune a day. I could see music and play it straight away. But, you know, kids are... There's usually one thing that every kid is good at like naturally naturally good at or or naturally fascinated with and um i was i was kind of more books you know i just my, my actual genuine talents and the things i understood on a really instinctive level was like how a sentence worked rather than how like a chord sequence worked and um so i was never a natural i always wonder how good i'd be if i if i if i'd carried on but uh sometimes you just go be honest with yourself and know that like that kind of, you don't really have that in your bones it's just none of my family has any kind of jet, any musical talent. My immediate family has any musical talent whatsoever. And I tried and I got as far as, you know, as far as I could at that time with it. But um, it wasn't the thing. If I was good at any one thing, that was playing music wasn't it for me. As much as I loved listening to it and, you know, tried to play, tried to do the best I could. Yeah, yeah I mean, I too, I'd, I'd just be straight up. I can't play an instrument because I, I wasn't very good at it. Um, and like most music journalists, that's probably why I'm doing this instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people, yeah we also say journalists are like um you know they wish they were musicians but like that was when i was 10 you know eight or yeah 10 no, i mean i never had any... I've, I've got, yeah I've, I've got i've got a long time, a long time over that yeah, yeah. alex yeah. uh well yeah no um it's all about the bass clef uh i was a trombonist for a while you know um uh, very wow. classically trained and um yeah i mean i i uh, uh and then i uh, got way into bass guitar you know um yeah just yeah playing in metal bands and all that kind of stuff uh kind of growing up, you know, and, and, you know, there, there is a bit of a cliche about, you know, um, a lot of, you know, music journalists are, um, you know, uh, just uh, want to be musicians or whatever else. And, and, I, and I think that's true. I think people just respond to music in different ways. Um, some want to emulate it, some want to intellectualize it. You know, most people do a bit of all of it, you know, and I never stopped considering myself a musician, but, um, you know, uh, certainly through music journalism, I've, you know, discovered a, a whole new respect for what it takes to persevere in an incredibly difficult industry. Uh, but yeah, um, you know, I, I think we just register it all in different ways, but you know, it definitely gave me, I think a better understanding of, you know, a lot of what was happening and possibly, you know, meant that, you know, I go to dream theater shows and experience it in a different way than, than other people do, because you're just mm -hmm. sort of looking at what people are doing from a technical standpoint more mm -hmm. than taking in the music. But, uh, but yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> given the current circumstances, you never know, maybe, maybe, um, trombone is what metal needs well it's funny you say that because eleanor plays sax so we could get a we or she used to play saxophone so we could kind of get a metal hammer brass section going <laughs> well I, I i don't think ishan would disagree i mean uh you oh know, yeah I mean, <laughs> We've got a you know ghost I mean, bonus now there you go there you go and uh an imperial triumphant have a trombonist occasionally too but, uh, avant -garde black metal. There's, um, where it's at man it's where it's yeah, at. Absolutely. Very, it's very it's very creek 
indeed uh marco lg says uh this is probably a useful one for everyone wanting to have some good stuff to watch over the coming weeks um favorite band documentary uh and he says despite iron maiden's early years being a great gem my favorite is beyond the lighted stage by rush which i've never seen actually what are your favorite um music documentaries chaps oh is it just one uh no 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 real off some oh man um, you know, I, I, I think one of the most excruciating and fascinating ones is Beware of Mr. Uh, Baker, um, you know, about Ginger Baker, of course, from Cream. Right. Okay. Um, you know, and I mean, that, and that is just a big car crash. But, man, you get such a sense of this guy who was just a, an absolute genius and a real piece of work, too. You know, um, I think, you know, in honor of, you know, the, the subject matter today, um, you know, Flight 666 is just such a great summation okay. of what they achieve globally. Um, yeah, yeah. Beyond the Light Stage is, is absolutely brilliant, uh, you know, as a as a you know, I mean, just, you know, I mean, absolutely one of the greatest bands that have ever played. Um, just trying to think of some others that have really blown my mind. Um, you know, of course, aside from the one that I produced. We should toot our own horn. Like, we both made documentaries. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. That was um, the uh, fantastic uh, Monomath documentary, which is, is, is it out on, I guess it's out on DVD by now, isn't it? Because uh, was... yep, yeah, uh, DVD Blu-ray. Uh, I think you can. Sorry, find yeah. It well. DVD, no, no. <laughs> such a friend. Really guy. sorry there. Really sorry there, guys. Out sorry. on mini disc. Okay, I will leave. No, 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 no. It's a good documentary, man. And you know, it's 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 good to see. That's exactly. I think one of the great things about metal is that's exactly the kind of band that you maybe wouldn't have envisioned getting that kind of career retrospective treatment twenty years ago. So. It's just fantastic to see that. Um, no, no. I mean, most people were surprised that they've been around for 25 years. But I guess what, what makes a great documentary, though, is just trying to get under the skin, you know. And I, I, think, I think through the process of doing that documentary and working on others that are upcoming, there is, um, you know, uh, it's very apparent to me just like one of the greatest challenges that people have is, you know, dealing with people that have become so adept at expressing themselves musically and getting them to talk about their feelings, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, and that's a different thing altogether. And, uh uh, certainly, I think one of the things that makes documentaries great for me is it just like great music journalism, it gives depth to the artists and it makes you feel like you come away knowing them in some level. Mm, absolutely. I mean, on, I mean, on that note, in terms of getting under the skin, obviously, I've got some kind of monster on here. Um, it feels like uh, that documentary is something you kind of assume everyone's seen it, but I mean, it's that documentary 16 years ago now. So if you happen to have come into metal since then, there's a chance you might you, there's a chance you might have missed it, but in terms of compelling and occasionally car crash viewing, I still think some kind of monster is one of it's one of the bravest things Metallica have done in terms of putting themselves out there. It's a fascinating insight into where the bands were at at that point in time, um, and I think given how much real love it, it feels like there is around the scene for Metallica in the last few years, it's it's mad to think that they were just in this crazy position when they were just totally breaking down and not you know not getting on with each other and really struggling in the studio and all the rest of it it's still a fascinating watch um i still really like metal a headbanger's journey um in a way it's almost like a primer for people that aren't into metal in the first place like if you're already into it it's not going to teach you a whole lot that you don't already know about but it's just really cool to see all these great personalities popping up across the the um the thing that sam's done put together um the anvil documentary is obviously a classic uh, amazing heartwarming story there um, the Lemmy documentary from frighteningly about 10 years ago now was really good fun. Um, and I just tacked on a couple of more recent and actually not metal documentaries. Uh, but the Amy Winehouse one's fantastic. That's just called Amy. Um, very sad, but also interesting look into 
um, her amazing uh, for unfortunately short life. Um, the Oasis documentary Supersonic is just fucking great as well. Um, and I really like the Lady Gaga documentary Five Foot Two that's on Netflix. Uh, that's just a really interesting one as well. I want to also give out a shout out to, to some of the all, or a couple of all time classics. Heavy Metal Parking Lot, obviously. You know, just, um, right. just so American. The Kind of Western Civilization Part 2 is yes. amazing. And I also really liked um, Heavy Metal in Baghdad about the oh, band Akrasi Kelda that was stuck, was, was stuck in there. I interviewed them once actually. They, were, they, they made it out of Baghdad and into um, Turkey and they were still having a shit old time. Uh, and yeah, well, it, we are one of my favorite things. I'm just going to get to my own horn as well. One of my, my favorite things they did was for our old company uh, doing their documentary with uh, Phil Wallace on um, London by North, which was uh, the story of Vardruna uh, enslaved and how they came together to create Scripture. And, um, you know, all, all pros, you know, all props to um, Phil because the way he went up at the mountains in, in January, freezing his tits off shot all these amazing cutaways in the hills of Bergen and the way he edited it was incredible. Um, you can actually still watch this, by the way, on the Metal Hammer YouTube page. So if you go into YouTube yeah. and search London by North documentary, you can still watch this. Yeah, and, you know, you know, both in, both Einar and Ivar from Slave are such interesting, articulate, and quite, you know, people don't, you know, sort of quite, um, you know, very entertaining individuals as well, too. But we also spoke to Garland, and if I, uh, you know, Ex and old Fordruna, and um, it really told a story, and um, I'm, I'm I'm super proud of it, and it's largely because of um, all the amazing work that Phil did. But um, I still think you know I had a connection to those bands that um, you don't even hear my voice on it, but um, I, yeah, just I was really proud of that. Um, cool, and a fine fine choice as well. Uh, let's rattle through a few more questions. David Connell says, "Made and related in in honor of today's uh, Hall of Fame." Were Blaze, were Blaze Bailey's generally maligned years in Iron Maiden really that bad? I saw them on the Virtual Eleven tour and it meant I got to see Iron Maiden in a 3,000 cap venue, giant inflatable Eddie and all. Those years were obviously a commercial nadir, but it wasn't all bad, right? I feel like the, the cliche that Blaze, the Blaze Bailey years of Iron Maiden um, were crap it's kind of not really widely accepted now. I feel like most people recognize that they did some fantastic stuff in that, in that time now. What do you guys well, think? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, you know, anybody who's been out on the legacy of the beast uh, tour at any date knows that one of the absolute high points of that set is uh, the Klansman, you know, which of course, uh, absolutely. you know, uh, it's just gotta be one of the greatest Iron Maiden songs that I've ever written. And, you know, I mean, just like, you know, personally having had the pleasure of spending some time around Blaze interviewing him, I mean, he is just like the nicest, humblest, loveliest guy in the world, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, so, I mean, I, I feel defensive of him on that level, but also defensive of that era as well. I mean, the 90s were a difficult time for any band that kind of came before because it's like everything just sort of got, you know, and that it's like that Raise the Lost Dark line, you know, just like wiped clean by the wrath of God. I mean, it was just everything changed because I think history began to fold back on itself and suddenly rock, metal, all these things were self-aware and a, a new wave of things kind of came in and unfortunately for Maiden it was like the perfect storm the times had changed and so would their singer and so um yeah you know I I think I think it's an era that deserves a reassessment you know um I don't think that it is uh right that is maligned to, to the extent that it is but there is absolutely no question that with the return of Bruce Dickinson Iron Maiden began a new chapter in their career and, and one that sort of continues to this day 
Mm, I think that's completely fair. Um, let's do a couple more. Scott Sitompol says, uh, what would be the title of your autobiography? <laughs> um, I, have a, I have a story behind this. Mine would be, hmm, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Reason being, so when I, when, in the 90s, when I used to write for Melody Maker, one of our session editors, he had a, he had a diary, uh, uh, like, a, like an address book, and, I had, and me and um, my colleague and good friend Taylor Parks, we broke into his computer, I looked at his entries for everything, and um, he had a little description of every writer. So Taylor's was um, a talented hacker and preposterous individual. Simon Reynolds, the guy who made me want to be a music writer in the first place, his was a master, and Maya just said, hmm. <laughs> and I never know quite sure which way he meant, which, you know, which side of the hmm that was, but that was the point. And I think, yeah, some things, some things just shouldn't have answers in life. And that's definitely one of them. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, it just seems seem perfectly right. Uh, Alex, what would you what would yours be? Oh gosh, I mean, uh, it, it, it's an impossible question. I mean, uh, maybe is this thing on? <laughs> I, I have no idea. But uh, I mean, the, the you know, uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, ask me again in thirty years. Okay, um, I think I might have a better answer, but maybe it'll come to me. All right, uh, mine will probably be. Uh, Yes, it is my real name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just to save everyone some time. Uh, <laughs> let's do one more. Bradley Cassidy says, uh, now we have more time to ourselves and we're likely to be bored. Do you have any tips on getting into music journalism? Uh, Bradley says he's done his undergraduate degree and he's about to apply for a master's in PR. Um, to go alongside this, he's up in the Northwest. Um, shout out everyone in the Northwest. How do you reckon someone outside London achieves this goal? Um, Alex, you're from a little outside of London. <laughs> yeah, well, I grew up in Naples, um, you know, uh, in Italy. Uh, I, was, uh, I was born in London, grew up in Naples, uh, in Virginia, in the States. And I mean, the truth is, I, I don't think that there's ever been, um, you know, uh, a similar trajectory for any two music journalists, you know, because so many people come from different areas. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think I would say to anyone, especially now, I mean, because... You know, uh, you know, music journalism comprises so many different things. I mean, you know, broadcast, podcasting, video making, all these sorts of things, and fundamentally writing as well. You know, um, I think to be a great writer, you've got to be a good reader. I think to be a good music journalist, you should be a great consumer of music journalism that is out there that you respect and admire. And I think you have to try and master the medium before you begin, uh, you know, kind of getting into that world. So if you want to be, a, if if you want to be a great writer you've got to write, you know, um, and you've got to love that, that thing first. And I think that's um, the thing that's very apparent, I think, of people that do have careers is, you know, they, they have adapted to this changing landscape. But I mean, at the core of any great music journalist is a great fan of the music, I think, but also, um, you know, a great storyteller, you know, um, and someone capable of doing the thing that we've just done, loving something enough to be able to talk about it for <laughs> 90 minutes and still have some gas in the tank. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's all, all fine advice. And just to say in terms of, you know, being from the north and outside the London bubble, um, Eleanor, who's our deputy editor and on this podcast most weeks, uh, she's from Manchester, so she's northeast. Um, so uh, uh, yes, I'm sure she would have some uh, good advice on that kind of stuff as well, if anyone wants to hit got, her up on I've the Facebook one, reader page. I've got one point specifically to for music magazines and one point more universally. Specifically to music magazines, read the magazine. That is, yeah, that does help because when we get 
when we get pitched stuff, obviously we're always delighted to have people want to write for us and it's a privilege to be in a position where people want to do that. Um, yeah. But we can tell quite quickly if someone's not read the magazine. Yeah, like, if, like, in the same way, like, like if, if you're a photographer, you can look at, you can look at a mag- different magazines and you see how they frame stuff because you understand how something is constructed. So if you have the, if you have the insight to see how they, fr- like it was a photographer, they frame stuff, if you if you're like a writer, you would notice genuinely you you're, you cared about the craft of the writing. You would notice whether they use first person, whether they use um uh, pre- what tense they do certain things in, um and don't just set you know it's very easy just to send something you knocked off for uh, on a, on a on a blog and send it to Mel Hammer, but we don't write like that. So you know you have to. You have to like be aware of the world in which this that, that each any magazine particular magazine you want to work for um you know lives in because you, you want to be part of our world well i want you to know that um you want to you understand our world and you want to be part of it um on a broader more existential level just like um ask yourself one very searching question which is why am i doing this if you think it's glamorous then you know, don't ask bother. myself that every day. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like, but you have to have an answer to that question. Like, you know, do you have some, some insights? You know, a lot of people that you know, you know, sorry, but a lot of people they send, send stuff in, it reads like a diary entry, and it's like, well, I don't understand why you want to write for Mel Hammer, you know, you know, or something like that. So, you know, like, do you have a love of words? You know, you, you engaging, you know, do, do you love kind of engaging with people? Um, and especially in a world now where you, you can go straight on um, online and hear a piece of music, you have to do something in journalism that you can't just get this into a piece of music, which is a bit of context. You know, being able to, you know, help people, you know, be able to sort of make people sort of listen to something in a new way, pick up something they might not have, might not have noticed, you know, that kind of like deep listening, or whatever. But ask yourself, why am I doing this? And that's a really personal question. And I think in any, in any form of craft or art or anything that you're doing, is you have to you have to a really good answer to, to that question absolutely and uh you know one of the reasons i like doing this is because we get to have um you know conversations about the things we love like we have today and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you both fellows um that is i think just about it for this week's show if you have any thoughts on it come to the facebook reader group um i've told you the address enough times i'm sure now uh, Jonathan, we'll have you back on very soon, I'm sure. And Alex, it's been an absolute pleasure. Please do come back anytime. An absolute honor. What a delight to hang out with you guys. And uh, yeah, 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 indeed. We'll uh, we'll have to do this Man, more. I'll try to give you something less agonized to preside over next time as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we can all be friends. <laughs> Until the next one. <laughs> all right, thanks everybody. Cheers for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. And uh, yeah, keep your eyes on metalhammer.com as always. There's loads of great stuff happening, so we'll see you all soon. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.